Good morning. It looks like Thanksgiving weekend out there. <laughs> little, little, little thin, but we'll call you the faithful. So, no, I'm just joking. Uh, not that you're not. I'll just stop talking. Uh, a little, just a little housekeeping on this sermon, um, on the sermon series in Genesis. Uh, we, as by we, I mean the elders. Uh, wanted to reiterate that this series, in part, is intended to help all of us understand uh, the direction of our culture and how it's related to an utter rejection of God's creative order in Genesis, or at the very least, an improper understanding of it. And so we ordered the book, Strange New World, uh, over there on our little library shelf thingy, because um, it's a great companion to this sermon series uh, for a deeper cultural analysis just of what we're talking about um, from a biblical worldview, which obviously, uh, if you just read the first couple chapters of Genesis, but the entirety of Scripture, uh, it's different than a cultural worldview. So anyway, that is a companion to do that, so we recommend picking one up and uh, I don't think any one of you will be disappointed if you do so, so... Okay. Oh, and just on a side note, personal note, two things happened this week. I'm becoming more, more Leavenworth. One of them you're seeing today is the first time I've worn a flannel in the pulpit. So uh, the second one is uh, I had my first Danwich so, uh, on Monday. So I figured out what that was, and uh, it was delicious. Anyways, I took photos, sent them out. So, uh, yes, it's I'm just being more engrafted into Leavenworth. Okay, if you're visiting today, welcome. It's not usually this odd as we start off. We're going to start in Genesis 2 today, 14 through 17, entitled Back to Eden. I don't need this. Genesis 2, starting in verse 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When no thorn bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Halavah, Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. 
and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and of good of evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, that seems just on surface level, maybe the first time hearing it, uh, that seems like an intense punishment for just eating from a tree, Lord. But it also seems to represent something about you. Something about your purity and your holiness. About who you are. And God, I pray that, that we would have a proper understanding of that and, and understand when Paul writes to the Romans and says the wages of sin is death. We learn that in Genesis 2. Adam learned that in Genesis 3. Ephesians 2, as we read this morning, teaches us that we were all dead in our transgressions. We're spiritually dead people, Lord. We have all sinned against you, like Adam. And yet you gave us hope. Yet there's a tree of life that we read about in Revelation that you're providing for those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ to forgive their sins. That believe that not only that he died for their sins, but he rose from the dead and ascended to the throne of heaven where he's now sitting because his work is complete. Our salvation is secure because it doesn't depend on us, but depends on him alone. So God, we pray for an understanding of your word today. Would you lead us to, to worship you, to know you more, to have, to have an understanding of what's taking place in the garden here in Genesis 2. God, we ask this to the glory of Christ. Amen. We've arrived to our first division marker in Genesis, which, if you remember, is these are the generations. From this point, Moses concludes the cosmic creation account of the heavens and the earth, and he picks up in humanity's story. And here we get a small glimpse of what life was like before it was affected by the fall. The most notable thing about this experience, though, is the relationship between God and man. Because at this point, sin had yet not broken the relationship between them. And therefore, we read here in Genesis 2, God was dwelling among man in the Garden of Eden. Where Adam had full access to God. And of course, we know how that turned out, right? Adam was told, do not eat. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge, and if you do, the consequence will be death. And we know in a chapter, he does it anyway. Now, what I want to do today, though, is look at the peculiar role Adam was given here in the Garden of Eden, specifically the role to work and keep it. 
And I want to emphasize the nature of that role and why it was so important. And primarily because the reason we are no longer in Eden, the reason that God is not, we're not just dwelling with God in Eden as Adam once done, is due to the failure of Adam's responsibility to work and specifically keep the garden. With that said, the Bible does... uh, Well, it grants us God. God grants us access back into Eden. It's a new Eden. And the way that we receive access, that's where we'll conclude the sermon. So how do we get the access into that new Eden? That's where we'll conclude. But point number one, when Eden was Eden. Verse 5. When no thorn bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Some people are skeptical about what seems to be an apparent contradiction between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 says that the dry land and seed-bearing plants came prior to the creation of humans. Here in verse 5, though, Right? It says, no bushes or plants had yet sprung up. So the critique goes, how can we trust the reliability of the Bible when we can't even get past the first two chapters before we encounter a contradiction? And just for the record, I don't think asking questions um, about what looks like apparent contradictions in the Bible is a bad thing. And nor do I think that we should write those questions off as unimportant. Because to be fair, a passage like this is puzzling. I mean, not for nothing, but it, I mean, if you've ever read through the Bible or some of it, like from time to time, you've come across what appears to be a contradiction. And occasionally, a lot, it's going to take some time and some serious labor and effort to work through it. And sometimes you spend a lot of effort trying to work through it, and you still don't come up with a satisfying answer. But loved ones, let me me remind you something in regard to that labor of digging deep into the Word of God. That's that's Proverbs 25.2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to seek it out. Which means, in in reference to the word of God, to the Bible, God has concealed glorious treasure. He's concealed it throughout the pages of Scripture. And he's placed them there to be located, dug up, and enjoyed. So you're going to have to grab a shovel It's going to take work. It's not always easy. But in regard to this specific, uh, what could be a contradiction in our passage today, uh, first off, I just, I just like to simply apply at least what I think is a bit of logic. This is just noting that the same author who wrote Genesis 2 is the same author who wrote Genesis 1. Right? 
And the book of Genesis, the Torah, has been read and reread for millennia. And it's been copied and recopied for millennia as well. So, the, so my logic goes, my rationality goes, do you think Moses, the author of, the, of Genesis 1 and 2, and the scribes who recopied the text century after century, never realized that these two accounts didn't match up? And if they did, which it's not real hard to observe and to figure out, why wouldn't they have changed it, right? If you're trying to convince someone that the Bible's trustworthy and reliable, surely you don't want to have a contradiction in it. You see, so that's, that's, that's what I'm getting at. If, if the authors and the scribes were trying to avoid criticism about the reliability, why didn't they alter the text? Why didn't they make sure it matched up? like a logical answer is, which I want to suggest is because there isn't a contradiction. In fact, I would say that Moses knew exactly what he was doing whoops, <laughs> when he wrote Genesis 2 and what he writes here in verse 5. Moses is referring to a pre-fall condition of the earth. He's saying before the curse of sin, the earth looked like this. And he's anticipating his own narrative, which is leading up to the fall in chapter 3. So therefore, what he's done is he's painted a picture for us of Eden, while Eden was still Eden. It's the original paradise before the couple, before Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree. And because when they do, what, what does God do? God punishes Adam, and part of his punishment is he curses the ground. That's part of Adam's punishment. Genesis 3, 17, to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Here we go. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toll you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Here it is. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. You see? In Genesis 1, the vegetation God created was able to re reproduce itself as seed-bearing plants. But here, the thorn bushes, the thistles, the plants that Moses is referring to weren't part of God's original creation. They were part of his judgment for the disobedience in chapter 3, which means that Moses is not contradicting what he wrote a chapter earlier. He's anticipating what will follow a chapter later. Which brings us to the role of Adam, the role of the gardener, point two.
when you drink out of a straw in the pulpit, you have to be prepared to sound like a sissy sometime by the sounds that it makes. So that was one of them. Okay. The role of the gardener. Verse 15. Let's, let's pick up there. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to work it and keep it. What's Adam's purpose here? Is, is God just telling Adam to tidy up the place a bit from time to time? And, and, and so is, uh, hey, Adam, here's a garden. <laughs> Try not to let things get out of control. Right? Watch out for all types of pests and animals and insects because they can really do some damage to your crops. Work it. Keep it. I mean, it would, it would make sense because if you've ever worked a garden, those little pests can ruin your crops rather quickly. This, this year I had, I don't even know what they're called, one of those little green worms destroy my entire basil. I mean, just one, just one, ate the whole plant. Saving that for pizza. A few years ago, an entire swarm of bees in North Dakota ruined over 200 of our apples on our best apple tree. And we only had two. And the other one didn't even produce good fruit. I, don't, I think it's helpful advice. Watch out for the things that are going to destroy your plants. But I'm doubtful that that's all that God had in mind when he gave Adam his instructions here. Yes, part of Adam's role was physical labor. Work is not a condition of the fall. We have to establish that. It is not. Work is good. There will be work in the new heavens and new earth. But I think something else is going on here. Because as soon as God told him to work and keep the garden, he then gave Adam strict orders not to eat from the tree. And I think those two are related especially in light of the unfolding narrative that's taking place here in Genesis. Now, I'm not as skilled as many of you gardeners, so in order for me to have a better understanding of what is God telling Adam, I did what any of you experienced gardeners would do. I grabbed a Hebrew dictionary and I looked up the definitions of the words here. As usual, there were multiple meanings for the word keep, as in to keep the garden. It could mean to preserve, to protect, to watch over. Sometimes it means to keep God's law. And while these may have different meanings, I think, they, I think they have the same range of what God is telling Adam here. Watch over the garden, Adam. Protect it. On top of that, the only other time the phrase work it and keep it are used together throughout the entire Bible is in the book of Numbers, where it describes the duties of the Levitical priest, which are to guard and to minister in the tabernacle. It's the tabernacle. It's where the glory of God dwells. It's where the glory of God dwells with his people. The Levitical priests were supposed to guard it, protect it. Don't let it become defiled with sin or with things that are unclean. I 
this isn't any old garden, right? There's something special about this one. But it's not, it's not the garden itself that makes it special. Rather, it is who is in the garden that makes it extraordinary. And we know Adam's there. More importantly, so is God. See, the, the, the Garden of Eden is a sacred space where the glory of the Lord resides. And Adam's role is to guard it and to protect it. I mean, the entirety of Scripture beyond Eden tells us that any place God chooses to dwell among men must be undefiled and decontaminated from sin. Which means in order for Adam to, to, to remain having access to God as he does here in the Garden of Eden, he's got to stay fit for his presence. The garden has to stay fit. Moses, remove your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. Adam, work this garden. Protect it. The garden needs to stay pure. But Adam, so do you. The gardener must remain unblemished as well. And in verses 16 and 17, Adam receives specific instructions how to do so. You may not eat. You can eat of any tree in the garden, but you may not eat of the tree of knowledge. Adam, everything I've given you, everything except this one tree is up for grabs. Enjoy it. Live it. Love it. Eat it. Drink it. Whatever you want. It's yours. Don't get caught up in that because, because remember, Adam, my greatest blessing to you is that I put you in the garden with me. Adam, you're in the midst of your creator, the, the presence of the triune God, the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-wise, never-changing, infinite, eternal God. The most glorious thing in all of my creation because I'm the one who created it. It's yours. But listen up. The requirement for you to remain here, Adam, is to keep watch over this sacred space and also to keep watch over yourself. Don't let Sin, enter. What sin, Lord? Breaking my rules, right? And my rule is, don't eat from that tree over there. Watch over it. Protect it. Guard it. And if anything tries to enter this space that doesn't belong here, Destroy it. Remove it. Don't let it in. There's some pretty low-hanging fruit, pun intended, for application. For our application. I mean, it's pretty easy. The application's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? If we can just 
put ourselves in Adam's shoes and apply what he tells Adam to our lives. Don't sin, right? <laughs> Don't even give it a square inch of ground in your life. Don't play with sin. Don't let it in. Now, I don't think the issue is knowing the application. I think the issue for us is applying the application. And something, his, 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 we've had a huge transition, though, from the Old Testament where God's dwelling in the Garden of Eden to God dwelling in the tabernacle to God dwelling in the temple that now us as Christians are identified as what? We're the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. We're identified as where the glory of Christ resides. So like Adam, we're told to keep watch over our sacred space, right? Individually and in the church. And we, how do we do that? How do we guard? How do we watch over and protect it's, we do it by fighting sin. We fight against sin. I'm not talking about fighting against sinners, right? I'm talking about fighting against sin in our own lives. Which means flee from temptation. Keep your heart and your mind undefiled. Prepare for it. Don't just enter Monday morning, tomorrow when you wake up blindly. It's just, just hoping that I don't sin as much as I shouldn't. No, no, prepare. Prepare for it by reading Scripture, by praying to the Lord for strength. By the Second Corinthians 10.5, by taking your thoughts. Here, here it is right here. This is, this is the tough one for me. Taking your thoughts and attitudes captive and making them obedient to Christ. That's tough. As we, we think of these big sins of don't get an attitude with your server or, or, or when we're thinking of our attitudes. or man, I can't think of another one because the only one I can think of this morning is don't get an attitude with your wife because you're running late. That's a personal confession. You're headed to worship with the church. You're headed to worship with Jesus Christ who saved you and your wife, your family, your, your daughter from sin. You're not even going to be late and your whole morning is affected because you're not taking your thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. Love the Lord your God. Mind. With your mind, right? That's how we do that. Don't give sin a foothold. That's Adam's. That's what, that's what God's telling him. Watch it. Protect it. Don't give it a square inch, Adam. It ain't going to end well. When, when has sin ever ended well for any of us? Now, metaphorically speaking, when the serpent enters the garden, don't talk to it. 
Don't entertain it. Scroll through. Don't watch it. Don't listen to it. Don't go to it. Just flee from it immediately. Now, I said we conclude with the way back to Eden. There is a way to Eden, the new Eden. And I think it's noted in the introduction in Genesis 2, for this brief moment in history, we get to see what the world was like prior to sin. But in real time, you and me, we get to experience as consequences. Here in Genesis 2, the consequence for sin sets the foundation for a biblical worldview as to why this world faces relentless suffering and affliction. Why do people get diseases? Why do people fight with one another? Why do people hate one another? Why do people die? And the answer remains the same. Because of sin. Sin is at the heart of every crime. Sin lurks in the shadow of every ounce of greed. It's evident in its love for slander and gossip. It's, it's got an appetite for hate. And you name it, sin is at the center of all of it. And our biblical worldview, our, our doctrine of sin, at least if, if our doctrine of sin is taken from the Bible and gives us our understanding of how we just understand how God created things, got so messed up. It's a great distinction between church culture and the current culture of our secular society. I mean, the world knows it's, it's, it's got an issue that needs fixed. That's no surprise. The world knows it needs to get back to Eden. The problem is it doesn't know how to. In fact, it, the world doesn't even know what Eden is. It really doesn't know what it's supposed to look like. Thinks it does, but it doesn't. It, I was reflecting on this during the past week. Thinking about the lyrics of a John Lennon's uh, song, Imagine. I thought it would be good, because I couldn't remember the lyrics to say, you know, to use it as imagine all the good stuff. And then when I read it, I was like, oh, well, that's way off. It's, I have a couple of lyrics here. Imagine there's no heaven. <laughs> I'm out. It's easy if you try, but I don't want to. No hell below us. We're probably all excited about that one. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Well, that ain't hard to imagine. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be 
as one. Lenin's imagining, he's writing about what Eden would be like. Imagine a world that didn't have what was going on in that time for him that he lived. The problem is, though, with his lyrics, he wants to remove what made Eden Eden. And he wants to increase what made Eden like this. And the reason that he and the rest of our culture cannot come to the proper solution to restoring Eden is because it doesn't believe sin is the primary cause of its demise. So generation after generation, the The culture tries to reinvent ways to turn this ship around, to change its course, to pave a new path. In spite of their best efforts, they increasingly get further and further off course. Until the world is willing to acknowledge it is in this predicament because of its rejection of God, and its defiant heart toward his word, they will continually be able to identify brokenness, but they'll never be able to provide the proper solution to heal it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the collapse of a society and its utter rejection of God's design is just a coincidence. It's funny, though, how those two things always seem to go together. I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think you do either. And that begs the question. If the world, the worldly ideology, no matter on its intention, if it's incapable of providing the proper solution, then how do we get back to Eden? And the answer to that is the way to Eden is through Christ. Did you know you can tell the gospel, you can tell the entire Bible with three gardens? That's it. I can tell the entire story of the Bible with three gardens. The Garden of Eden and the fall. The garden in Revelation 22 where we'll live forever. And the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ died to get us there. That's it. That'd be an easier, shorter read, wouldn't it? Yeah, same thing with three trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3, well, 2 and 3. The tree of life in Revelation and the tree that Christ was nailed to to get us to the second tree. The way to the new Eden is through Christ. Because Christ was able to succeed where Adam failed. Adam, in a chapter, he rejects the will of God in the Garden of Eden, right? 
But Christ obeys the will of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, not as I will, but as you will. This pinnacle moment. Drops of blood sweating from the brows of Christ because he understands that he is about to drink the cup of wrath. Takes place in a garden. Adam ate from the tree of knowledge, which brought death. But Christ, Christ drank the cup of wrath, the cup of God's wrath which provides life. So the way that we get back to Eden is by passing through the Garden of Gethsemane, which means we go through Christ to get there. We do not have access to the Garden, the new Eden, if we don't go through Christ. If Christ doesn't give us access, we don't get in. Jesus is the only way that we can get to exist in a world, in a new world where the presence of sin does not exist. And it's not just Christians. There there isn't anyone who doesn't want that. Everybody wants paradise on earth. We all want a paradise. Everyone, Christians and non-Christians, we all want paradise. The difference is, People don't refuse paradise because they don't want to go. They refuse it because they don't want to go through Christ. But the Word of God says that we have to go through Him. Because none of us can enter the new Eden defiled by sin. So in order to have access, something must be done about our sin. Because just like Adam, we have failed to obey God. And just like Adam, we deserve God's justice. It's a whole other topic. But have you ever actually just considered that you deserve God's justice for your sin? And while that seems like something you don't want to dwell on, let me encourage you to do it. Because when you have a fuller understanding of all of your sin and the justice of God's wrath that it deserved, you will have a fuller understanding of the sweetness of Jesus' death and payment for your sins. We don't get granted access on our own. The Bible teaches that we have to have someone speak on our behalf, and we have someone who is willing to speak on our behalf. 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. One anonymous Christian author sums up our advocacy of Christ just perfectly. He says, 
It's Jesus Christ who pleads our case when Satan tempts, attempts to prosecute us before God for the sins we've committed. Christ is our advocate, mediator, and high priest pleads our case before God. Now listen to the next part. He says the case he, well, it could be she, he, the case he presents his father doesn't rest on our success or fall apart because of our failures. Instead, the case Christ presents is based on his perfect life and his shed blood. And then he says, and Christ, our advocate, has never lost a case. Do you understand that? Jesus doesn't stand before the Father and say, Father, forgive them because they've earned it. Jesus doesn't stand before the Father and plead our case saying, Father, forgive them because even though they've sinned, they, they always meant well. Surely the good overweighs the bad. No. No, that's a lie. That's not true. No, when Jesus stands before the Father on our behalf, he doesn't speak about us at all. Rather, he advocates for us on behalf of what he has done. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them because I lived a righteous life. And therefore, my righteousness belongs to them. Grant them access, Father, for what I have done for them. That's the gospel, right? That's what Paul says to the Corinthians, and we'll end there, that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us, so that what? So that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's the access that grants us into the new Eden. Let us pray. Well, Heavenly Father, God, I, well, I don't know how to make it clearer, but I understand that there's a spiritual uh, transaction that has to take place in the heart of, of every person to, to want to repent from sin, to turn from sin, to acknowledge that, yes, I, I deserve, I am, I am filthy, I'm wicked, I'm a sinner, every, everything that I can imagine, that's me, I've sinned against you. But God, I want access. I want access to you. I want to be in the new Eden. Lord, I want want the blood of Jesus Christ to remove all of my sins. And God, that's a work that your spirit must do in the heart of men and women, Lord, who have never done that before. So God, we ask for that. We plead for that, and we plead to them that if they've never repented and believed that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead, Lord, that you would create faith, that you would forgive their unbelief and create faith in them. Amen.